Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message of hope through our series, Heaven Meets Earth. We are excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Many times we don't realize that the Christmas story began long ago. Much, it's, the, the origins of the story are much older than Jesus they're much older, older than, than Mary and the birth of Jesus, and today what I wanted to do is walk through some of that story today, and as you can see on your notes, I didn't do any fill-ins because we are going to take a journey through the Scriptures, and there's a lot of them, so we just got to jump right into it. But the first thing I want to do is ask a question that's going to sound like a stupid question. Some of you were told in school there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, turns out sometimes there is. It's going to sound like this. It's going to sound uh, irreverent, but can God be trusted? Well, yeah, uh, yes, of course. Of course God can be trusted, but it, but it sounds irreverent. And, and here's the, the, the deal, I think, in our own lives. Academically, yes, you read the Scriptures, you come to church, and, and you hear the pastor preaching, and you sing the songs, and you go, yeah, God can be trusted. But then practically we go live completely different ways, as if everything is on our backs, as if everything, the outcomes all rely on us, as if we're in charge of our own lives. And in that way, we practically do not live as if God could be trusted. We academically know the scriptures that God could be trusted, but we practically take matters into our own hands, do we not? So I'll ask again, can God be trusted? Yes, of course. God can be trusted. It's almost self-evident. If God could not be trusted, then he would fail to be God. If God wasn't trustworthy, then, then again, he would not be God. God is truth. God is goodness. God is beauty. God is practically, we could trust God with everything, but we practically do not abandon all the outcomes to God, don't we? So it becomes easy as a little practice to say, yes, I trust in God, but then much more difficult practically when finances are tough, when your health seems to fail, when your relationships are falling apart, when just the world seems like it's just going to fall apart in, in one shot of a gun, it seems like the whole world is going to erupt. It just seems easy to mentally say we trust in God, but practically not to. God can be trusted. His promises can be trusted. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start our journey today in Genesis chapter 12. This is actually where the story of Christmas starts, and a lot of people don't realize that, uh, but this is where the story of Christmas starts. So we're in Genesis chapter 12. For many of you, these texts will be familiar, but if you're not familiar with these texts, and we're going to look at God's servant Abram, God's servant Abram, uh, well, first let me just read this text and then we'll, we'll talk about it. It's the promise to make Abram a great nation. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So if you know the narrative arc of the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, there's Adam and Eve well before this. 
And Adam and Eve uh, forfeit their privileged place in the garden because they chose, they chose what was good in their own eyes. Instead of God saying, this is good, this is good, this is good, don't touch this, they said, no, we're going to choose that what is good and what is not good. And so they're abandoned. They're, they're, they've abandoned their place in the garden. They forfeited it. They, they were deceived by the serpent, and they, they left the, the garden. Violence began to rule on earth, beginning with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel starts this whole trajectory of violence on the earth. And then you see in Genesis chapter 6, you see like the, the, the spiritual rebellion. And there's this spiritual rebellion. And then violence erupts even more. So much so that God has to, to flood the earth to do away with the evil and recreate the earth again through Noah. But it doesn't take long that this slippery serpent that is in the garden begins to have its way with the human heart again. And the human heart Violence begins to rule there, greed, all these things. And then eventually we get to the story of Babel in Scripture. You get to the, story, the Tower of Babel. Many of you have heard this story. It's where these people all got together. They all spoke one language. They built this giant tower. And God says, come, let us confuse their language. It sounds like kind of mean, actually, when you hear it in that terms. Like, oh, this is weird. Why would God do this? They were making such progress as humanity. But you have to understand that story as a humanity finding unity in humanity, not finding unity in who God was, their creator. And in their worldview, they're creating this tower to go up to the heavens, because if you could go up to the heavens, then you could usurp or control the gods. And so in their worldview, this tower is becoming their own god. And so God says, let's confuse this language and scatter them. And this is the place where Abram comes from. In fact, it talks about Abram's father leaving from Babel to go to a different land and Abram being with that family. So God calls a family out of the most corrupt place on earth, Babel, the Chaldeans, which will become later in, it's like when you read that text in the Bible, you should think of the Star Wars, like, um, you know, the ominous music, like, dun, dun, you know, like something else is coming back up in scripture because you're going to go to the book of Daniel and find out people are being taken by Babylon, all the same place. The exact same location. Ur of the Chaldeans. It's the same spot. This is where Babel was formed. It's, it's this like human society that's centered on themselves. That's what Babel is in the scripture. That's what the spirit of Babylon is in scripture. And Abraham is called out of this spirit of humanity that is centered on itself and confined their own purpose in themselves. And is called out by this character Yahweh, to show him this land. And he tells him this promise that one day you'll become a great nation. One day you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. One day, Abram, all the people on the earth are going to be blessed through you. One day. So the narrative arc of the, of the scriptures are God creates humanity perfect. They fall. Violence reigns on the earth. The height of, of their arrogance is found in Babel. And then God calls them out and says, but something new is happening with this guy, Abram. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And that's the beginning of the narrative of scripture. That's just 12 chapters into the Bible. So God calls Abram, makes him a promise. In fact, if you were to chart carefully these promises, you'll find that there's seven promises. And God likes to do this. It means he's got a perfect promise for his people. 
Seven is the number of perfection in the Hebrew mind, and, and, and that is what he's doing. He's giving them seven promises, and one of these promises is, and Abram's name will be made great. His name will be made great, and that somehow God's protection will be with him, and that somehow all these nations are, are going to be birthed through Abram. And so as you keep going in the story, one of the things, Abram, you can see Abram has to, to rescue his, his nephew Lot. There's like all these challenges that Abram has right away. He's got to go to Egypt, and then the Pharaoh likes his wife, so Abram lies, and is like, no, she's my sister, which was also kind of true, weird, I know, it's... Don't judge the Bronze Age by 21st century standards. But my point is, Abram like, gets this great promise and then starts to fail because he's human and he's got this serpent wrapped around his heart just like Adam and Eve. Well, 10 years passes. He doesn't have any children. He moves around a lot. He rescues his nephew Lot. And God shows up to Abram this time. And he doesn't just call him or speak, but he actually makes a covenant with him. A blood covenant. Abram becomes the Lord's covenant partner. The book of Hebrews will, will call him friends with God. This was so rare, by the way, in the ancient world to be a friend with, the, with God. So Genesis 15, 1 through 6 goes like this. And after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be their heir. By the way, Abraham's foreshadowing. A servant in my household will be my heir. What does he do later? He takes his promise into his own hands. He has an heir with this woman, Hagar. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the skies, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So 10 years has passed since God told Abram that he would be a great nation. And then he renews this covenant with him. He tells him, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to make your name great. Really, I'm going to make my name great by making your name great. This is what God is doing. He said he would make them into a great nation. And Abram thinks, how can this be? I don't even have children. He's telling me my own flesh and blood. And on top of that, I'm old. Abram's an old dude. His wife, Sari, is, is old too. He's like, she's past these childbearing years. How could this even be possible. So God shows up and he reassures him. He takes him out and says, look at the stars of the sky. You can trust me. Look at the stars. You can trust me. You will have this many descendants. You can trust me. Abram, I can see that you're stuck in this moment where everything seems hopeless. I can see that you're trying to take on these promises as yourself, but I'm the promise giver. And as the promise giver, I'm the promise keeper. I give the promises. I keep them. You just have to hold up your end of the deal, Abram. The thing with hope and trust is that it's difficult when you're stuck in difficult moments of life. And for Abram, it was difficult at the moment. So at the end of chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. And it's, I'm just going to tell you this right now. Our 21st century eyes are going to read this right now, and it's going to seem really strange to you. But this is ancient Bronze Age covenant making. Right now, 
if you want to make a covenant with somebody, they email you a docu-sign, right? They didn't have that in Abraham's age, okay? That's a, that's a modern-day covenant, and we're like, great, I'm going to sign with my finger. It's going to look terrible, but, you know, we're, we're in this covenant together. I owe you money. You owe me money. That's, that's a covenant. But in Abraham's age, the most precious thing was blood because blood had life in it. And so they make these covenants together. And, and so let me just read this to you and, and just try and imagine this as I read it to you because it kind of sounds wild. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two. I always wonder which way he cut them, right? Did he like go down the spine or was it like right through the belly? I don't know. I don't know. Lengthwise? Okay. Obviously lengthwise. You learn nothing in church today. Cut the animals lengthwise. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness was over him. Later you'll see that, that God took this flaming pot and passed through the bloody corridor. That's what God did. This is how Bronze Age covenants were made. You cut animals open, you arrange the pieces half from each other, and you have got two people in a covenant. They become covenant partners for life. This is what covenants were. One day we'll have to go through about all the ancient covenants out there, blood covenants, because in every single society in the world, from China to the bottom of Africa to, to America even at this time, there's blood covenants happening, and it's the language of the world. And God speaks the language of the world, so he makes this blood covenant, and both covenant partners are supposed to walk past each other. And it's a swap of protection and identity. What happens is that the covenant partners say that you, I, if anything, like, let's just imagine two tribal leaders doing this. One tribal leader passes the other, and they go through this bloody corridor. They say, you are now family. You are now blood. You are now closer than anything that there is to me. We are blood covenant partners, and I will protect you with my life. My tribe will protect your tribe with our lives. That's what a covenant partner does. But in this setting, only God does that. And Abram will have to make a blood covenant with God a little bit later. So there's this covenant happening, and each of the covenant partners, they walk through all this stuff to symbolize it's a peace treaty that you live at peace with one another. It's a reminder that a failure to uphold your end of the covenant will leave you like one of these sawed in half animals. That's how... Uh, that's how, that's, you know, you don't get that with DocuSign. I'll just tell you that. And lastly, it's an exchange of identity. In India, there's adopt, the blood covenant ceremony in India in the ancient world was piercing ears and taking the blood out of the ears and putting it on your body. And you adopted that child through a piercing of the ear. And that's what the ear piercing symbolized. And it said, I now have my blood in you. You now have my, we, we now share each other's blood. We're closer than family. That's what it was. So this idea that it's a swap of identity. Now, a couple of chapters later, Abram would get circumcised and hold up his end of the covenant because there's blood involved in that too. Um, guys, you know that. Anyways, Genesis 17, 5. 
then there's a swap in identity. We're getting a little technical on covenants here, so stick with me. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of nations. Now, here's a really important part of covenant making. You swap identities. So Abram now gets a new name, Abraham, and Sarah gets a new name from Sari to Sarah. 300 AD, we have this rabbi named um, Rabbi Abihu, and he taught that the renaming of Abram was a result of God taking both of the H's out of his name, Yahweh, and giving them to Abram and Sari, becoming Abraham and Sarah. So literally what God was doing is taking his name and giving it to his people. This is what's happening with Abram and Sari to make them Abraham and Sarah. Literally, God's name was written into their names, and they were taking on the identity of Yahweh as covenant partners with Yahweh. And I wonder if they thought at the time, okay, God, I get it. You gave us part of your name. We took on your identity, but we're covenant partners. I get what it means to take on your identity, God, but what does it mean for God to take on my identity? What does it mean for God to become human. What could that possibly mean? And so this is the beginning of this covenant promise that's alive in Israel. Well, if you know the story, Abraham, Abraham's family would eventually go to Egypt. They'd be slaves for 400 years. And, and, and you got to ask, what about the promise of God? What about the covenant? God promised that this would be a great nation, but yet they're slaves under Pharaoh. But eventually God leads them out and, and they, they go out into, the, into um, the desert, and we did this whole series this last year uh, during the summer called Moses, and we talked about this, that over and over and over again, it would start really well, but then over and over and over again, God's people would rebel, and it's like, no, you're people of the promise. You're people of the promise to Abraham. You're people of the covenant. Stop rebelling. And you get all these stories of like the Korah's rebellion, the earth swallowing up and whoosh, taking away a whole swath of people. You get these stories of the people worshiping uh, the, the golden calf and like they would get sick and die. And then they go to the promised land and, and it looks really good because they're going to inherit the promised land. But then you get these people with sticky fingers and they're like, ooh, they got gold and wealth and they hide their possessions under their tent and a lot of people rebel with them and they have to die too. And it's like, God, what's going on with your promise and your covenant? You get the story of the judges. And, and spoiler alert, let me just give you the whole story of the judges in a couple sentences here. The book of Judges is like when they're honoring God, they're doing well. And when they're not honoring God, they're doing really, really bad. That's the story of Judges. In fact, at the end of the book of Judges, it says, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, that's like a wink, wink, nod, nod to they were eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's what the people were doing. And then you go into this time and you get all the people say, we want a king. Again, that might look like a good story to some Bible readers. Oh yeah, Israel, they get a king. But what that was doing is a serious rejection of God as their king. They rejected God as their king. But eventually a king would come that honored God, that loved God. His name was David, obviously the best name in the world. That's why we had two Davids reading uh, Advent today. Second most named person in the world. is The second most common name in, in the world is David. It's only behind Muhammad, by the way. <laughs> but you've got this king, David. He would come settle disputes in Israel. 
He would protect Israel. He would follow God's laws. I mean, yes, he had hiccups. He had bad things. He did some things that were wrong. He sinned just like anybody else. But by and large, David helped this promise flourish. And it looked like, wow, under the Davidic kingdom, that maybe this promise that we'll be the people who will bless all of the earth, maybe we're the guys that are going to do this. We're the community. God's promise to Abram so long ago is actually for me today in David's kingdom. Wow. And then Solomon comes and, whoa, the temple of God is built. This is incredible. But then there's this little story right after the, the temple is built and all is well that, that Solomon took many foreign wives. And the kingdom starts to go downhill. Solomon dies. The kingdom split into two with his two sons that kind of are at war with each other. As the kingdom splits into two, it just descends into chaos. We were God's promised people and we squandered this promise. So as leadership goes, so goes the nation, and God's people would begin to crumble under the weight of trying to do things themselves, under the weight of worshiping foreign gods, under the weight of acting selfishly, oppressing fatherless and widows. Israel would fall in love with false prophets that tickled their ears. Israel's enemies would begin to grow all around them. And in 722 BC, this massive power from the north named Assyria would come and wipe out 10 of the tribes of Israel, would just come and take them away, actually never to be heard from again. Two of the tribes of Israel and Judah, a few years later, in 597 B.C., were the remaining two tribes. They would be exiled to Babylon, where Babel originally was. And this would usher in 300 years of chaos for Israel. And if all the while, if you were a Jew, you'd have to be asking yourself the question, how is God going to fulfill his promise to Israel? How will all the nations on earth be blessed if we are just being decimated and taken away? How is God going to give hope to the world through us? We're a laughing stock of the nations. We cannot bless them. During this time, you start to see some bleak Bible verses, and we're just going to go through some of those. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 45, this is when they're in exile. Truly you are a God who's been hiding himself the God and Savior of Israel. What's Isaiah saying here? Where are you, God? You've been hiding yourself, God. It's time to show up. We're in exile. We're hurting. We have no hope. We need you. Stop hiding. Where are you, God? What about the promise to Abram? You get these passages from Lamentations. You've got Jeremiah, the crying prophet, as he's known, sitting over the rubble heap that used to be Jerusalem, saying words like this. Lamentations 1.1, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people, how like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was a queen among the provinces has now become a slave. You get the heart behind this. Israel was this powerful being in the Old Testament now is like a widow. And a widow in that time is not like a widow today who probably has property in a 401k or whatever. A widow was just at the mercy of anyone who could help her. And that's what he's saying is Israel is just at the mercy of everyone. We've become slave to the nations. God, can you be trusted? Where are you, God? Jeremiah continues, chapter 3, verse 45. 
You have made us scum and refuge among the nations. Refuge is poop. That's what you've made us, God. Can God be trusted? We're the scum of the earth. One of the last books of the Old Testament, Malachi, is interesting too, and we're not going to go through that this morning, but the first chapter literally has said, God, you've made us a laughingstock among the nations. But God says, no, my name will be great among you still. Somehow my name will still be made great among you. And then there's 400 years between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. And this is known as a period of silence where not even the prophets speak. God is quiet. So you've got this great promise. Israel's doing great and loses it all. And all of a sudden, God's not even talking to you anymore. You're exiled to all these different places. I mean, literally, you come back into your people. There's two exiles. You come back into your land and all this stuff. And even in your own land, by the way, it gets conquered by the Greeks. Then, then after the Greeks go out of power, it gets conquered by this guy named Pompey, who, who is Rome, basically. And Israel has no power. They've got no influence. They're the least of the, all the people in the whole world. And that's what makes the story of Christmas so remarkable. When things were as hopeless as they could possibly be, when it couldn't get any worse, an angel shows up to this woman named Mary, who, by the way, just seems like such an insignificant character in the Bible until this angel shows up to her. She wouldn't have even been noticed in anywhere, in any setting, but God notices her. Luke 1, 26 33, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went with her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You who are highly favored. I love that. And Mary doesn't say, Gabriel, you don't understand. We're a conquered people. Do you get what happened when, when Greece conquered us? They slaughtered a pig on the altar. Do you get what happened when Pompeii conquered us? We're, we're just a conquered people. We're nothing. She didn't say that. She went, whoa, God is speaking again. She didn't tell him all this, we're the scum of the earth or anything like that. She just believes what the angel says to her kind of like Abraham. And then Mary will sing a song, and next week we're going to go over some of this stuff in Luke a little bit in more detail. But right now I just want to tell you, what the way that Mary interprets this event is huge. She sings this, so I'm going to sing it for you right now. because I'm, No, I'm joking. <laughs> the first person to laugh was Jeff, by the way. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. 
Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Do you get it? Yes. Mary saw this as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. When it seemed like all hope was lost, when it seems like Israel was completely torn apart, she was like, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God promised so long ago. We wondered, Abram could take on God's identity by taking his name, but how can God take our identity? And it's growing within her that God will take our identity by becoming human, our true covenant partner. She sings this song, and she sees all of this rightly. And she sees all of the history of Israel laid out before her, and she sees it rightly and correctly that God can be trusted, that we can put our hope in him. When it seems like all is lost, that's where we need to go, is to the Lord. And she sees this. God's taking on our identity and becoming human in Jesus. This little teenage girl sees it for what it actually is. Finally, after all the pain, after all the defeat, after all the brokenness, God keeps his promises. This is why Christmas is so remarkable, because just when everything seems so hopeless and helpless, just when it seems like Israel had become a laughingstock, God shows up. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption, the sonship, because you are His sons. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You get what he says? Paul saw this too. When the time had fully come, when complete hope had been lost, that's when the time had fully come. God stepped out of heaven, out of his privileged place. When it couldn't possibly get any worse, God came. So the question I have for you this morning is, do you trust God? The question I have for you, it can be put this way, where is your confidence? I I don't know how many times I've talked to people and they say, well, I believe in myself. Well, congratulations. I don't. I don't say that to them. I don't believe in you. No, I don't do that. I look at myself sometimes like, God, I can't do it. I need you. This is the story of Christmas that just when you're at the lowest of low, when, when stuff is broken in your life, when your marriage is broken, when relationships are broken, when your finances are broken, when your reputation is broken, when your hope is shattered, when your heart is shattered, can you trust God? The answer in Christmas is a resounding yes. We have something to hope in and to hope for. What I find remarkable about the Christmas story is that it was when, that is when the time had fully come. When it seemed like God didn't keep his promise at just that time, that's when he showed up. The least hopeful time from Israel, Paul calls just the right time. 
Sometimes it seems like it's hardest to trust God in our brokenness. It's hardest to trust God in the time when it seems like all is lost. But that's when the time has fully come. We can have hope in our promise keeper. He's a God who keeps promises through sending his son. The Christmas story reveals that God is a keeper of his word. As Jeff and the band lead us in this next song, I want to invite you to think about all of these things. That God could be trusted. That we could place our confidence in him. That he keeps his word from generations ago until now and until the future. That what he says here is trustworthy in your life right now. I want to invite you to think and meditate on these things and worship during the next song. And then we're going to take communion together as a church. Have me, there's, uh, our ushers in the back will have some. And the same way that God made a covenant with one man, Abram, Jesus makes a covenant with all of us, with all humanity. And I think that at that table that night, it's a point of decision. Are you really in? Can you trust where I'm going to take you, even if it's to the cross? You could trust me. Jesus had a meal with his disciples and what he's doing is saying, look, you have got to eat this meal because I'm going to walk through death for you. And this meal is much more than a meal. This meal is you saying yes to a new promise with me. In fact, Jesus will call this a new covenant in his blood. In the same way that the covenant of Abraham was, was fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus now makes a new covenant with all of humanity. And it's through this meal that Jesus wants to become your covenant partner. He wants to walk with you through the hopeless times of life. He wants to walk with you through difficult moments. He wants to give you a hope and a future. That's what this meal is about. Do you trust me? On that night, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving your body for the sins of the world. God, so that my sin could be crucified on your body on the cross. God, you've shed your blood for me. Thank you. On that same night, the text says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus literally took and emptied his veins to make a blood covenant with all of humanity. Taking this meal as an acceptance of the grace and the hope that Jesus wants to extend to you is a way to say yes to following Jesus. I want to encourage you, if, that, if you've not made that decision Yet yeah, this is a time where you can make that decision. Uh, biblical scholars and merchants of hope like John Wesley said this is a means of grace these times where the Holy Spirit wants to do something incredible in your lives. So maybe that's you. Take and drink. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you've made a new covenant with us in your blood. That you love us and you've redeemed us 
God, as the scriptures say, you've taken our sins as far as away, as far as uh, from the east as from the west. God, you've given us a new hope and a new future. You've redeemed our lives from the pit. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for the hope that we have during this season. And God, I pray for those who are walking through a valley of despair and hopelessness right now. God, that they could take their confidence and put it squarely into you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast with Pastor Dave Johnson. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.